0: So we turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. If you're here with us for the first time, or you've been here several times, I do invite you, if you want to find out more about our church, to the intro to UBC class, which meets at 1115, just across the breezeway, first door on the right, inside the white building there. And we'll be working through our doctrinal statement today and finding out what our church actually believes. So we welcome you, if you're a visitor here, to join us at 11.15. We are, of course, fast approaching the end of this glorious epistle. This is the most important letter in world history explaining how God and man can be reconciled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 15, we have actually reached the end of Paul's doctrinal and practical discussion. We will be occupied with verses 8-13 through this morning, but if you'll just glance down at verse 14, you'll notice how the chapter changes abruptly. Paul refers to I myself, and later in the verse, to my brothers. The epistle suddenly becomes very personal as Paul has a few more things to say to his brothers and sisters living in Rome. And then in verse 19, Paul speaks of his own ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And then in verse 22, Paul begins discussing his future ministry plans, including a visit to Rome on his way to Spain. And then if you just run your eye down through chapter 16, you'll notice that Paul identifies by name numerous believers living in the church of Rome In the first century. All right, so the epistle becomes very, very personal, beginning with verse 14. And so that brings us back to verses 8 through 13. And this is Paul's final application of the gospel that he has been developing through the previous 15 chapters. And what topic do you suppose will just complete his discussion? Well, let's read verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And notice how many times he refers to the Gentiles now. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Well, Paul here argues from the Old Testament that God intends to unite Jews and Gentiles through His servant, Jesus Christ. This is Paul's final word on the gospel now briefly let's recover the larger context back in chapter 14 Paul communicates his desire that both the strong and the weak would glorify God the father because of what Christ has done for both Christ has welcomed both into the church the strong and the weak So in chapter 15, verse 6, he says that together, that's the strong and the weak, you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the strong and the weak. We all glorify God with one voice. But how are we able to do this? Well, only by following the example of Christ verse 3, Paul wrote, for Christ did not please Himself. Christ was a supreme example of Paul's imperative in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That ought to be the focus of every one of us. Not on myself, what I can get out of the church, What can I do for the sake of my brother? Can I build him up? Can I minister to her? Now that's the broader context. Now observe how seamlessly Paul transitions from a discussion of Christ reconciling the weak and the strong to a discussion now of Christ reconciling the Gentiles and the Jews. And there is a single word, a rather shocking word that summarizes How Christ accomplishes this reconciliation. Look at verse 8. Christ became a servant. That's the word. A servant. Christ became a servant. So this morning, let's really give our attention to Jesus Christ, who is the servant of reconciliation. Jesus Christ, of course, is the second member of the Godhead. He, of course, is the king who preaches the kingdom of God. And he, of course, rose with all authority over all nations. But yet, Jesus first humbled himself, becoming a man. He humbled himself all the way down to the cross and down into the grave. Verses 8 and 9 tell us Christ became a servant to two groups of people. First, to the circumcised. That's to the Jews. In order to confirm God's truthfulness, He became a servant to confirm all those promises that were made back there in the Old Testament. And secondly, Christ became a servant to the Gentiles also. And God intended all through the Old Testament that the Gentiles would also glorify God for His mercy. And that's precisely what a servant does. He shows mercy to people. Now, of course, Christ coming for the Jews was hardly questioned by anyone. Of course, the Christ, the Messiah, belonged to the Jews. Consequently, Paul does not offer any Old Testament support that Christ comes for the Jews. We all get that. However, the truth that the Jewish Christ "...came also for the Gentiles, was fiercely disputed, even by Christians, even at the Jerusalem Council. Even the apostles themselves were very slow early on to comprehend the full magnitude of a Messiah who comes both for Jews and Gentiles. Remember back in Acts 10, you have Peter, and he still had very serious reservations about whether this Gentile Cornelius is really supposed to come into the kingdom." Or in Galatians 2, we read of Paul rebuking Peter for his bigotry and failing to eat with the Gentiles. Because the Jewish mind really stumbled over this truth in verses 9 through 12, Paul strings together four Old Testament quotations demonstrating that yes, indeed, Christ the Messiah came for the Gentiles. So don't miss this. And significantly, these quotations come from the three major sections of the Old Testament. From the Law, the Prophets, and twice from the Writings. Those are the three major ancient divisions. And Paul quotes all three. The truth of Christ coming for the Gentiles just pervaded the Old Testament all along. It was there. Did you see it? Did the Jews see it? So let's examine these four quotations. In verse 9... Paul quotes the Jews' most famous king, a man named King David. And in the 18th Psalm, David celebrates Yahweh, his Lord, as his own Savior. Psalm 18 describes Yahweh as David's rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his shield, the horn of his salvation, David's stronghold. It's a wonderful, delightful psalm. Psalm 18 is a prayer for a delivering God to come to David's aid in the midst of enormous trouble. And of course, David did indeed experience great trouble throughout his life. And Psalm 18 is also a triumphant song of God rending the heavens and causing the earth itself to rock and to reel all the way down to the roots of the mountains. It's a very powerful psalm. But at the end of this glorious psalm, David suddenly exclaims the words that Paul quotes in verse 9. I will praise You, O Yahweh, O Lord, among the nations. That's the Gentiles. And sing to Your name. I will let the Gentile nations know of Your name, O Yahweh clearly David wants all the Gentiles to know his God now the second quotation in verse 10 comes from the Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43 actually truth be told all of these references are taken from the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament I only mention it here to point out that the wording is a little bit different and I won't go into that now But the second reference comes directly from a section of Deuteronomy which records the song of Moses. And you can hardly think of two more famous Old Testament Hebrews than David and Moses. And yet both long for the day when the Gentiles praise the name of Yahweh. In fact, the words of Moses in verse 10 were the final refrain Of Moses' song, after which God told him to ascend Mount Nebo where he would die. So imagine Moses just trudging his way to the summit of that mountain with this great final vision in mind. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's verse 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles. With His people, the Hebrews. And now the third quotation in verse 11 returns again to the Psalms. This time to the shortest Psalm. Psalm 117. And here Yahweh, Israel's God, is said to be steadfast in His love and faithfulness forever. Imagine that. Forever God is steadfast, consistent in His love and His faithfulness. But guess what? The Gentiles also have every right to claim Yahweh as their God. Verse 11, praise the Lord Yahweh, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. It was always God's intent to be extolled by the Gentile nations and not just the Jews. It was there in the Old Testament all along. And finally, Paul turns to the prophets, and probably the most famous prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And Paul taps into one of the most famous passages in the whole prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah looks forward to this glorious, wonderful future day when a descendant of Jesse, the father of David, will come to rule and to reign in righteousness. And Isaiah says, The Spirit of Yahweh will come to rest upon him, which is exactly what happened to Jesus at his baptism. The Spirit came and rested on him. And when the Spirit comes, he will alleviate the poor. And he will bless the meek of the earth and judge the wicked and the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the lion and the calf shall feed together and the young child will not be stung by the cobra. Nothing will hurt or maim and kill through any of God's creation any longer. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Imagine that. As much water as there is in the ocean so the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the planet. The root of Jesse, we're told, will come to overcome the curse. Jesse's descendant will accomplish all this. But notice what else Isaiah says of that coming royal descendant. Verse 12, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And him will the Gentiles hope So again, the Old Testament said it all along. The law, the prophets, the writings. Gentiles can have hope in the Jewish Messiah. The Old Testament pointed ahead to the explosive, exponential advance of God's Gospel to bring the Gentiles into the covenant promises of God. So then we might ask, how is it then that so many Jews missed the mission of Jesus? Not just to call the Jews, but the Gentiles also into His kingdom. Well, look again at how Paul identifies Jesus in verse 8. Christ became a servant the word christ or christos in greek is the hebrew word for messiah or mashiach it refers to one who has been anointed specifically one who was anointed as a king as a ruler another king is coming indeed david's greater offspring is coming And numerous Old Testament passages predicted the coming of the Mashiach. But somehow the Jews missed the fact that Jesus himself was that Messiah. He was indeed that Christ. And probably there's no better explanation for how the Jews, many of them, missed it than the four words of verse 8 Christ became a servant. Don't read hastily over those words. They're so familiar to us, we really fail to stop and understand them. This is is incredible. The Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Ruler of all nations became a servant. The long awaited king, that long awaited son of David, when he comes, comes as a servant, not a king, at least not initially. Now, what I want to do is take a little journey back in the Matthew's Gospel, beginning with chapter 4. All right, can we turn there? And I really want to use Matthew's Gospel as a kind of commentary on Romans 15. And let's just observe how Matthew presents the Messiah, the King. Matthew has a great deal to say about the kingship of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Let's also observe how Matthew presents the Messiah as a servant. And not just a servant of the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Of course, Matthew writes many years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and he has an argument to make with the Jews. He wants to demonstrate to them that Jesus was indeed their Messiah. They did not understand him. And so he's going to present to us Jesus as king, yes, but also Jesus as servant, and servant also to the Gentiles. Now, Matthew 4 records the launching of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. This is in the north part of Israel. And Matthew includes a significant quotation from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And let's read it, beginning with verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, notice this, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah referred to Galilee as Galilee of the Gentiles. And Matthew deliberately includes this quotation in his introduction to the Jewish Messiah. There were numerous Gentiles living in Galilee in Jesus' day. In fact, some regions were just densely populated by the Gentiles. And Jesus' ministry was a burning light, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And as Matthew's Gospel just moves along, we'll find several references to these Gentile people being touched by Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. In fact, Matthew's Gospel is highly polemical. Again, he's writing as an argument to the Jews to show them they missed their Messiah. So let's observe several instances of Jesus interacting with the Gentiles. Let's skip ahead over the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew chapter 8. And here Matthew records his first miracle. And this miracle of healing is an extraordinary miracle where he touches a leper. But then notice a second miracle beginning in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And the centurion was undoubtedly a Gentile, a despised Roman soldier. And Jesus will heal the man's servant, probably also a Gentile, at a great distance. And Jesus exclaimed in verse 10 that the man's faith surpassed that of the Jews living in Israel. Look at the text, middle of the verse. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Well, isn't that precisely what we found in Romans 15 and verse 9? A Gentile glorifying God for his mercy. Why else would Matthew record this account if not to tell us that the Gentiles are receiving mercy from the Jewish Messiah? And it's in that context that verse 11 famously records the words of Jesus, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is referring to Gentiles all over the globe coming into the kingdom with the Jewish patriarchs. Now, would you contrast that centurion with the scribe, undoubtedly a Jewish scribe, together with another disciple that we read about in verse 18. Now, when, the G, then when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the year have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, at first glance, both the scribe and this other disciple seem to be genuinely interested in following Jesus. But, friends, be very cautious with that assumption. Jesus' response isn't too reassuring. Further, when the scribe says, I will follow you wherever you go, all right, he probably is not committing himself to indefinite discipleship. An expression in the Greek means something more like, uh, let me get in the boat and go with you to your next destination. I've got a few questions I've got to ask you. Let me accompany you a little bit farther here. I've got a few more questions, all right? It's not an expression that says, I just want to follow you from here on out. Let me go to your next destination. Wherever you're going across the lake, let me go along and ask some questions of you. And also, whenever Matthew or someone in Matthew uses the term teacher... As you see in verse 19, it's always used of someone who actually has reservations about Jesus. They're not quite sure about him. He's not necessarily buying into everything that Jesus has to say. And in the case of the second disciple, he wants to first go and bury his father. Understand that that is a common idiom. In the time, that meant something like, let me take care of my father until he dies. It doesn't mean that his father had just died in the middle of a funeral. In those days, if someone died, you buried them almost immediately. If his father had actually died, he wouldn't be down at the lake following Jesus. This is an expression of someone who says, you know, I'll follow you one day, but in the meantime, I've got to take care of mom and dad over here. So, neither of these disciples, these probably Jewish disciples, is willing to leave everything behind and truly follow Jesus, as a contrast with the centurion. Now, would you notice in the middle of all that that we find Jesus' use of this extraordinary name? In verse 20, he calls himself, for the first time in the New Testament, the Son of Man, And I'd like to hope that you all understand that term because I've mentioned it frequently. Very quickly, we find that term in Daniel chapter 7. And it describes this beautiful, wonderful, majestic scene in the heavens where God, the ancient of days, sits on this fiery throne surrounded by tens of millions of angels. We're told of a river of fire that proceeds from that throne And Daniel says he saw one like the Son of Man, and he came with the clouds to that throne. And when he came, he received the right to rule all nations. Jesus takes that name and he applies it to himself. And Daniel says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, that's what you're looking for when you're looking for the Jewish Messiah. But notice what Jesus says of the Son of Man. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? That doesn't sound like Daniel 7. He's a poverty-stricken, homeless Galilean. How can these be the same person? And listen to what else Daniel says. All, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Son of Man. Everyone's going to serve him. But here's what Paul said in Romans 15 Christ became a servant. Isn't that backwards? All nations should be serving the Christ, but the Christ became a servant to the nations? Isn't that backwards? So is Jesus, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures or not? It's no wonder the Jews were really very undecided about him. Now go forward one chapter to Matthew 9. We find a summary statement of Jesus' ministry in verse 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The reference to the synagogues indicates that there is a Jewish orientation to Jesus' Galilean ministry at this point. Jesus goes everywhere serving those who come to him, healing them, ministering to them. Now go forward one chapter to Matthew 10 and verse 15. And notice how Jesus' Jewish mission is entrusted now to his disciples. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This, of course, is a local mission. This will not carry the disciples forward to the end of time, of course. But initially, Jesus says, concentrate your efforts on the Gentiles. And go forward now to Matthew 11. And here we find a statement concerning where Jesus concentrated his miracles. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works, get that, most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe unto you, Chorazin, a Jewish city. Woe unto you, Bethsaida, a Jewish city. And skip down to verse 23 where a third city is identified, in you, Capernaum. Again, these were Jewish cities where up to this point most of his mighty works were being done. And observe in verse 21 how Jesus did not perform mighty works in Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities. That's the obvious implication of the text when it says, for the mighty works... For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. In other words, they haven't been done over there. I've been working in these Jewish cities, but not over here in Tyre and Sidon. So again, the if implies that he really hasn't decidedly reached out to the Gentiles as of yet. Now to go to Matthew 13. in Matthew 13 and verse 54, Jesus visits its hometown of Nazareth, and he enters a Jewish synagogue. Verse 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And the outcome of that visit is found in verse 57. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. Well, this is obviously a Jewish scene. Jesus came to minister to the Jews, and they reject him. So where is he going to go? Well, there is a decided shift in Matthew, beginning in chapter 14 and moving right into chapter 15. In chapter 14, we have the record of a horrific event that really sets the stage for a turn in Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, his forerunner, is brutally murdered. Nevertheless, Jesus just keeps on pouring out tidal waves of mercy on the Jews. He feeds the 5,000. But still, the Jews do not embrace him. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, look at the first words of Matthew 15. Then Pharisees and scribes. Those were the Jewish religious leaders. And when you see them, you know there's trouble on the horizon. And they are very angry at Jesus. Not because of all the mercy that he pours out on the Jews, but because his disciples don't wash their hands properly. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Those words, then Pharisees and scribes, mark the end of Jesus' formal Galilean ministry to the Jews. And from this point forward, we never again see Jesus enter a synagogue. And we will notice also a precipitous decline in the miracles that he performs for the Jews. And drop down now to verse 21 and notice the two cities that come suddenly into view. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Remember those cities? Those are the Gentile cities where Jesus, as of yet, had not performed his mighty works. And he moved swiftly now in that direction. And look at the beginning of verse 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman, that's a Gentile woman, and skip down now to verse 29, and Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now we might think that Jesus is resuming his ministry to the Galilean Jews, but listen very carefully to the parallel passage in Mark 7 and verse 31, you might just want to note it there. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon into the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. That is a Gentile region. That was a Gentile region along the southeastern shore, not a Jewish region. And way back in Matthew 4, there were many Gentiles that came from the Decapolis, we're told... They came in the Jewish Galilee where Jesus touched them, but now we find Jesus reversing course and he's going to the Decapolis. He's going to the Gentiles. And look at the outcome. Verse 31. The crowd wondered, the Gentile crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seen. And look what happened. And they glorified Jesus. The God of Israel. The phrase the God of Israel is intended as a stinging indictment to the Jews. You've rejected your Messiah. And He's moving on now to the Gentiles. And they are glorifying Him. Well, isn't that precisely what Paul said back in Romans 15? Paul said, For I tell you that Christ... Became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. That's exactly what's happening here. They glorified the God of Israel. He never intended merely to be glorified by the Jews, but by the Gentiles also. That is what Matthew is showing us. The Jewish Christ came to minister to hungry Gentiles To heal them, to feed them, and to cleanse their wounds. The Old Testament indeed predicted a coming Christ. A messianic king. A son of man to rule over all the nations. A king coming on a donkey ride into Jerusalem to liberate captives and to destroy the invaders. That's Zechariah. It's all there. But that's not all the Old Testament said. What else did the Old Testament say about the Messiah? Well, Isaiah's prophecy said also, Behold, my servant. Isaiah said his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance spoke of some enormous brutality that would befall the servant. And Isaiah said, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Not merely the Jews, but the nations will be sprinkled by the blood of atonement made by His sacrifice. Isaiah writes, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him And no beauty that we should desire Him. Well, that does not sound like Daniel 7 at all. Isaiah continues, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people. And they made His grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. When you read Isaiah's account, Can we not see the truth of Paul's statement? Christ became a servant. Well, how can this be? How do you reconcile Daniel 7 and Zechariah 9 and all their glorious prophecies of a liberating king, a coming Messiah, a son of man who comes to rule all the nations? How can that be? Well, the answer comes in the final chapter of Matthew. Would you turn there? The final chapter. And we're passing right over the top of that dreadful, terrible night when darkness ascended over the earth and the Son of Man hung on a cross on Golgotha. The servant was crushed, the servant died. And suddenly, verse 18, the servant is very much alive. And only then, and only then does the servant suddenly proclaim all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's now crystal clear. The suffering servant and the royal son of man are the same person. But unlike all the other Christ. Who come to reign and then die. This one comes to die. The death of a servant. Before he reigns as the Messiah. Messiah. And that Christ came, yes, indeed, for the Jews. But he came also to give his life a ransom for the Gentiles. Romans fifteen, verse eight. Christ became a servant for all. And that truth was entirely compatible compatible with the old testament scripture. But really, it wasn't until the resurrection that it really comes in the really sharp focus. Oh, we see it now. It was there all along, but now we see it. It's like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, we get it. He's one and the same person. The servant and the Messiah. Now, very quickly, friends, without turning back to Romans 15 let's just put Romans 15 and verse 8 back into its larger context. Christ became a servant to all. In a larger context, here's the question. How does a church survive? How do its members get along when you have people that have weak and strong convictions? How is that even possible? How does a church survive when no two people have the identical conscience? How does a church survive that's comprised of people from various cultures and backgrounds and outlooks on life, raised in different states, raised by different parents with different standards in different homes? And? differences of our music and how we school our children and what we do with our vacation time and how we dress and what sports teams we like and you mean you name it i mean how we think about our careers and how we think about church attendance i mean there's diversity how do we survive how do we survive with very different different personality types you better believe we have different personality types and how on earth does the church ever launch in the first century when you have Jews and Gentiles flooding in with different convictions and different cultural backgrounds? I mean, how do you do that? And how are we as a church going to really apply Romans 14 and Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15? You know, as so we've worked through these passages. I've had a lot of people tell me they've been very, very helpful, but we, we, re, we really have to get to the main point. We really have to come out where Paul comes out now. All right. Here's Paul's final word on the Gospel. Here's our, own, our only hope of survival. I really mean that. Our only hope of survival as a church. Christ became a servant to all. And so must we. That is Paul's final, final application of the gospel that he's been presenting through 15 chapters. Christ became a servant to all. Christ had not come to get out of the church. He came to give a servant to all. So we pray...